Herefordshire. Do you want to tell us the name of the villages? I can. Um, the four parishes... I'm feeding back. The four parishes are Foundhope, Woolhope, Mordiford, Brockhampton, and there's a mission hall up in Checkley. So four parishes, five sort of churches. So if you're ever there on holiday, you know where to go. Um, and Chris is also the regional director of Church Society for the South West. I won't ask you to name all the dioceses that that includes. Uh, now, Chris, tell us just a little bit about your history. How have you come to be in Anglican ministry? Uh, there's a question. Um, 20 years ago, I was ordained as a, a Baptist minister. I was in Baptist ministry, having been brought up an Anglican, um, because really that's where I felt the call to ministry. I was in a Baptist church at the time. Um, then uh, I felt the call of the better pension. And uh, <laughs> Well, it's, it's a long story. I started out, I was in Didn't ministry... Didn't be that honest. Well, well you know, <laughs> we, why not? We... What happened was I was a minister of a Baptist church in Cheltenham. I'd done a number of years there, and uh, I was undertaking some doctoral research, and I wanted to go full-time, as full-time as I could on it, because, frankly, I could not do it whilst I was in full-time ministry. So I got a, a, a job uh, teaching about roughly a day a week down at Bristol Baptist College on their Centre of Youth Ministry track, and we lived not too far from uh, the Diocese of Hereford, at that time in a house where we could afford to live. I've got five sons, so, so we need a large house. And we wanted to worship really where the people were worshipping, where we were living. And in rural England, that means you have to worship in the Church of England because there are not any other denominations, frankly, out there. So we showed up. There were seven of us showed up. Uh, we, we almost were added an extra quarter to the congregation as we turned up. And then within about two years, I found myself ordained as an Anglican. So, you know, I was brought up Anglican, I returned Anglican, and as the proverb has it, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. So that's the basic pattern. So I've had no Anglican training, I had a very light-touch Anglican sort of discernment process, and I did an 18-month curacy, I then ended up in Foundhope, where I have been now for, the, yeah, well, almost a decade now. Should we ask him if he's okay with infant baptism or, or not? Should we leave that one for coffee time? You can ask me Are you okay you with infant baptism now? Um, ish. Okay. No, I, I am okay with infant. I'm, I'm okay with infant baptism. I'm not okay with the majority of the infant baptism I find myself faced with. Okay. So infants within a believing family, I think that's part of the covenant. I'm happy with all of that. The kind of indiscriminate baptism, which is part of the job, less happy with that. Oh, interesting. Now, um, uh, we've got, obviously, some very good musicians here already, but you're a bit of a musician as well, but of a diverse background. Yes. So, so you've been in a rock band and rock. singing choral evensong on the telly. So tell us about well, that. Not quite a, yes, no, I was. I was brought up in a church choir, so I was runner-up choir boy of the year in 1980. So not choir boy of the year, runner-up, because I wasn't that good. Um, I also, yeah, I did, play, um, I did play bass guitar in a heavy metal band before I was kicked out for going bald. No, because... <laughs> no, they, they, I did that for, a, for a, quite a number of years. It was a period of really building up testimony. It was a period of you know, drug use and the rest of it. So it was all good testimony building stuff uh, prior to my conversion uh, the, the band did carry on they signed a five um, album deal with Sony but actually uh, they didn't make any money so even as a lowly vicar I, I think I've made more money than they did okay. out of that because so you're Pete Best to their Beatles as it were you well, left pretty, before they well, had the deal well, pretty much Pete Best though, so I'm trying to think of a band who was a one hit wonder but yes <laughs> yes great well and um, what are you speaking to us about today uh, patience with 
people. Okay, which something Ross, which you need a lot of working with us. In well, indeed, well, Ross said, I've seen how you deal with Lee. Chris, could you speak on patience with people? <laughs> so uh, that is good. Cultural. I've got handouts as well, because so, give me something to read. They're just on the table by your prayer books. Okay. Uh, and, uh, I'm going to hand over to Chris once I have set my phone to record what he's going to say. <laughs> We're going to record all the talks. And they will eventually find their way onto the Church Society website, where you'll be able to listen to them again. And again, and again if you want to. So, let me pray for Chris as he comes to speak to us. Everyone got a handout that wants one? Let me pray for Chris, and then we'll hand over to him. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Chris, that you've given him faith in the Lord Jesus, despite that interesting past, that you saved him out of uh, that life and have given him new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Thank you for calling him into ministry, first in the Baptist Church and now as an Anglican in rural Herefordshire. Please help him as he speaks to us about patience with people, to speak clearly and be patient with us as we ask questions. And I pray that you'd uh, speak clearly to each one of us and uh, equip us for the ministries that you have given to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Chris, thank you. Thank you. Just before I begin just working my way through some of what you've got there, uh, just to say that if any of you do want to talk about rural ministry, do talk to me. It's not something I sought. I was born in Dagenham. Uh, I'm not from any rural area whatsoever. Um, Somebody else born in Dagenham was there. (laughs) Good man. And um, and as a re- well, I got out though, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I have found myself in rural ministry really much to my surprise. And it is an extraordinary form of ministry. I think it's something which is needed. Uh, I know there is the temptation, particularly amongst evangelicals, to go for that large church kind of experience and move to the suburbs. But there is a lot of work that can be done in rural areas. So please, 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 if you have any interest whatsoever, do talk to me. Um, because I like it. As we go through this, I'm not going to read everything that's on here. I've just, they're basically, you've got a, a chunk of uh, quotations, Bible verses on there, plus one or two other quotations, one uh, from a Romanian Orthodox uh, theologian whose name is Dimitri Steinloi, or something like that, and then uh, a couple from Thomas Watson, who is a Puritan, 17th century Puritan writer. So um, what you've got there is something which you might want to either have a look at afterwards if you want just to see where I'm coming from, or B, if you find me tremendously boring, you can work your way through that as I'm speaking as well. But the first thing I want to do before I get to the basic shape of what I want to say is to try and say what patience is not, because I think it is misunderstood. I think patience is something which, frankly, we use as an excuse at times in ministry and outside of ministry, Patience is not never getting angry. Now, I'm making that point not because I want to sort of go into some kind of a rage, but because clearly we find anger being expressed in the Bible controlled, not something which takes us over. I'll come to that a little bit later. But Paul says in Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin, which tends to suggest that anger in itself is not a sin. But we need to be careful to try and differentiate between a righteous anger and a kind of unrighteous anger. I'm not going to be talking about that much more, but I just want to say that anger is something, a lack of anger is not what patience is about. 
Neither is it about being passive. Patience is not simply about letting everything just happen to you, to being weak-willed and never standing up for yourself or standing up for the faith. It's not also tolerating sinfulness. I've pinched these, by the way, from Richard Baxter. 20 Helps to Patience, volume 11 of his collected works. There we are. But he's quite keen to point these things out. You shouldn't simply tolerate uh, wrongdoing or tolerate injustice or tolerate sin and call that patience. It's tempting to do that, but it's not what patience is. It's not cowardice either. Patience at the time is actually more difficult and harder and more courageous than the alternative, which is to fly into a rage or something else like that. And patience is not an excuse. I think often I have seen people using patience as an excuse for inaction. It's not any of those things. So I want to try and clear the decks before I talk about what patience is, just to say those things which it isn't. Any queries on that before I move on? Are you happy? Patience, then. If it's not any of those things, what is it? I think it's a calling. I think it's something which we are called to do. In other words, I think it's something which isn't necessarily natural to us. If you're called to do something, it tends to be because it's not something that comes easily. It's something which is part of our discipleship. It is something which is part of what it is to be Christian. It is, frankly, something about being Christ-like. I think also it is a spiritual gift. Paul talks about patience as one of the gifts of the Spirit. In other words, again, it is not something which is necessarily natural to us. Some people are naturally more patient than others. Some people are certainly very impatient. And so if we are finding patience a problem, the good news is it is something that we can pray for. It is a gift which the Spirit gives. It is a sign of a kind of spiritual maturity, We grow in patience. Let me tell you, if you have five sons, you grow in patience the older you get. And it's simply because you you learn to control that kind of rise that you get within you, because you have to. As my wife used to say to me fairly often, Chris, you have to be the grown-up here. There is something there about um, patience being something which is a sign of spiritual maturity. And it's also a means of blessing it's a way in which we can bless other people we can bless people by being patient with them so as we go through i wanted to try and talk a bit of how we might do some of this i i in the end i've settled on a verse ephesians 4 3 um it's in verse taken entirely out of context but you'll forgive me for that with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love and i want to take as the four heads if you like the four uh, steps the four steps to patience there we are uh, those four areas so that's i want to try and talk practically about this because i think patience is something you have to learn and it is something which we have to uh, come to grips with Are we content with that? I'm going to pause as we get to each kind of main heading. So there's a chance for you just to sort of ask questions and then at the end uh, sweep up there. Content. Excellent. Humility. I should have read this a couple of times before I stood up. Te pain of fron sune. Humility or modesty. The word which is translated humility, which I've uh, mangled and which I've put down on the, the handouts there, has a sense of modesty about it 
And I think the first thing that we can see in humility is that we have to have a humility with our relationship with God. I think this is key. And I see that the big red book, the big red Piper book, uh, available for book review at the back there, which is the book on providence, which Piper put out recently because he was concerned that people's doors were banging shut and needed something to hold them open with. Well, if we're going to have patience and humility, the first thing, the, honestly, the first step is we have to trust in God's providence. When we went into lockdown, um, whatever long ago it was, 18 months or so ago, one book which I felt very, I found very helpful because what I decided to do was to start sending out daily devotional emails to my uh, congregation. I regretted that after about three months as I was having to write these things every day. But one of the things which I found very useful, one of the books I found very useful, was All Things for Good by Thomas Watson. I've got a few quotes from Watson towards the end. And that is a book which is saying really what it says in the title. He's taking the verse uh, where Paul uh, tells us that all things work for good for those who love the Lord. And he's saying that even suffering is for our good. He goes through pretty ruthlessly every single kind of misfortune you can face and tells you it is for your good. And so what I was trying to mine that for was to say in this uh, pandemic, these things are working for our good. And this is part of humility it's being humble before the lord it's saying that you must trust god that his providence he knows what he is doing even when you do not know what he is doing it means that you have to trust in god's timing you have to love god in all circumstances even when that person on the pcc is really driving you spare this is for your good it's a revolutionary kind of thinking but it's a entirely biblical form of preaching of thinking and we know as paul writes that for those who love god all things work together for good or earlier in romans paul talks about how suffering is good for us because it's character building something my parents would tell me often but if you're being humble towards god then the corollary the other side of that is being humble towards yourself that is an enormous danger, particularly in an angel, in an era where we find that we are living in the rise and triumph of the modern self. You're talking about this later? Um, that there is a great danger towards self-love or self-idolatry. I think it is fair to say that the self has probably the highest um, standing that's in, within the society than it probably has ever had. So we must be careful not to place ourselves at the centre, that we must die to ourselves and ensure that the zeal that we feel, and zeal is a good thing, Christ was zealous, the zeal that we feel is for the Lord, is for God and not for ourselves, our standing, our prospects. So when you're finding yourself being irritated by somebody, when you're finding yourself needing to be patient with somebody, think on your own sin, because it is there. What this person is doing, is it any worse than the sorts of things that you do? Uh, maybe you've done wrong here. Maybe there's a kernel of truth in what the other person is saying. In my experience, there normally is. And that actually you do wrong other people, not intentionally, you don't set out to do it, but you find yourself doing it almost unintentionally. 
So you have to have a humility towards yourself that says you're not the great person you think you are. That you're certainly not the great person your mother thinks you are. That actually you need to have a humility towards yourself. But you also need to be humble towards others. That the humility you show before God, surely you also show show towards those who are made in the image of God. So you have to ask yourself the question, do you need to get involved in that thing? Often the answer is no. You can let that email go by. You can, you don't, I don't do social media, but it is allowable not to comment on every tweet or every Facebook post that somebody puts up. You can just let these things pass by. It really doesn't matter that somewhere, somewhere on the internet somebody else is wrong. It's not your job to correct everybody. You can let some of these fights pass you by. And you don't have to jump to a conclusion as to what you think the other person is saying. Again, it's often very helpful to try and put the best spin on what somebody is saying. Very rarely are people simply trying to attack you. Actually, try and think better of them, and then you may find that you have the correct interpretation. And often, you find that the real problem is yourself. Simply, you're suffering from pride. Simply, you're tired I have five sons. Or you're just simply feeling angry. So having that right understanding of yourself, that humility about yourself, that modesty about yourself, is a key foundation to showing patience to other people. So that's the kind of the, the chunk on humility. Any questions on that or any comments? As I say, you can jump back at the end, but anything initially. Good, I shall continue. Gentleness, I like this one. This is the second of the words that Paul is using. Uh, Proud taste. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. There's something. There's something for people who stand up the front of church wearing robes and collars and stuff like that. And this is where we need... So I just think it's interesting that this is actually what the word gentleness means. We translate it as gentleness, but actually it's about not being over-important. That's what produces the gentleness. And this is to try and be careful of ambition or careful of a kind of conceit, of vainness. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It is very easy, particularly in a denomination that likes its ranks and its gradations and all the rest of that. And I have been stood in cathedral vestries when arguments have broken out about the right order in which we should process. Because, as you know, the more important people go towards the back. So when somebody says after you, they're insulting you. We've seen all of these arguments break out almost particularly and uniquely within Anglicanism because of that hierarchy that is there. Ambition actually, I would suggest, can at times be a lack of faith in God knowing what is best for you. It may well be that you're not suited to be this, that or the other. It may be actually the most important people in the church don't wear the pointy hats or certainly don't wear the dog collars, but are the people who are faithfully praying who sit somewhere towards the back. So beware of that over-importance that comes with a kind of ecclesiastical importance or self-importance. That goes for the music group, as much as it goes for the preacher, as much as it goes for the church warden, the PCC member, the youth worker, etc. Because frankly, you're not as important as you think you are. 
The great joy of Baptist ministry is knowing that your congregation can sack you. It gives you a certain kind of relationship with your congregation. It's very hard to be puffed up and over-important with people when you know that at the next church meeting they can raise their hands and three months later you're out. So just beware that. But it's important for another reason as well. In my experience, very often, people are talking not to you as a person, but to you as a holder of an office. In other words, I often find that people, when they see me wearing a docker or when I'm doing something, and then they see me elsewhere without a collar on, because I don't wear a docker in my parishes apart from when I'm sort of leading services or things like that, people often don't immediately recognise me because I'm not wearing the dog collar. They know me as the vicar, an old vicar, but they don't know me as much as Chris. So when people are talking to you, when they are perhaps trying your patience, it's not because of you as an individual, but it's because of who you represent. They're actually frustrated with God. They're actually frustrated with their faith. Not you, but that. So be careful that you're not taking these things personally. You're trying to answer and trying to deal with these people as they are, and it's harder not it's harder to be let me get this right it's harder to be insulted that's what i want to say it's harder to be insulted when you don't think you're important when you're not got a high horse to get off so just be aware that often when people are talking to you either simply as a christian or if you're in some form of ministry they're often not talking to you in fact they're probably having a pop at your predecessor but three who said something I once went uh, as a Baptist minister to Winchester, no, Winchcombe, which is a, a little village uh, near Cheltenham, because I had a member of the congregation in Cheltenham. I knew it was a cottage hospital. I knew that the ward sister there had quite a reputation, but you could get round her and visit outside of visiting hours if you wore a dog collar. So I wore a dog collar, which I sat only twice as a Baptist did I wear a dog collar. So I duly got in. She didn't notice the kind of the, the creases on the front because it was brand new. Uh, I got in, and then I thought I'd meet my wife afterwards. I dropped her off, and I, we met up, and I popped into the butcher's because we wanted some sausages and um, did I mention I have five sons and then uh, we went home and as I was given the sausages the butcher said here you are vicar I'll give you an extra couple of sausages I thought oh that's very nice isn't it so I went back in the van we used to drive a kind of minibus was driving back home and there cycling in the opposite direction was the vicar of the parish and I just nicked his sausages (laughs) the point is that the butcher didn't recognize the face he recognized the dog collar Often you can be much more patient with people when you realise they're not talking to you as X, Y or Z. They're talking to you as the vicar or the Christian. Any questions on any of that before we move on to patience? Did you get the sausages back? (laughs) No, I enjoyed them all the more because I knew they were stolen sausages. which gave them a kind of savour and a kind of mustardy sort of tang to them. Yes, take that, Anglicans, I thought, with your better pensions. Should we remove that bit from the text? I'm quite happy for that to go on the record. Yes, that figure here is, and I'll buy him a brace of best. We actually have got a butcher's in our village, so I shall buy him some sausages from there if he hears this. Patience is the next thing. Patience, so this is actually what I've been asked to talk about. These two are leading up. Uh, Macrothumia, the state of remaining tranquil while awaiting an outcome. That's the first kind of meaning of the verb. All these, by the way, are from the big BDAG uh, lexicon. Um, Bauer, Danker, Arnton, Gingrich, I think, uh, which is the standard Greek lexicon. The second meaning of the word is a state of being able to bear up 
under provocation. The state of remaining tranquil. I will just quote this proverb, this one. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. This state of remaining tranquil. I'm going to go slightly off piste here. Um, I'm going to quote an Augustinian friar, um, Martin Laird, I think his name, in a book. Gosh, it's years since I read this. Um, into greater silence, something like, into the silent land, I think it was called, Dartman, Longman and Todd. There we are, I have remembered. And he is trying to talk about silence in prayer. Now, you don't necessarily have to go into all of that kind of stuff. I was teaching a course on spirituality at the time, which is why I read the book. He made this very interesting thing. Now, if you want, you can reject this entirely, but I just found it an interesting thing. He said you need to realise that um, you, emotions don't have to master you. I'm going to come to this a little bit later. But he said, if you find yourself thinking of something, if you, and he was talking about prayer, if you find something consuming you, then just acknowledge the fact and then think of it as a car driving by and just let it pass. And he also spoke about anxiety and things in prayer. He's talking about the distractors. He said, realise that anxiety is simply a chemical reaction within your body and you can just acknowledge that and allow it to pass. Now, this isn't a particularly biblical teaching, although I do think that the passions, and we'll come to that in a minute, are, but I think it's just a useful thing that when you find yourself beginning to become less than tranquil, you can do something about it. It isn't an inevitable path. You can do that thing that your mother told you to do of count to ten before you speak, but you can just acknowledge that and think, I'm not going to act on that. And eventually you find it is a... This has been my experience. I've had five sons. Eventually you will find that it's helpful and that you can master that kind of rising up within you. As I say, it's Augustinian, by which I mean it's a current Augustinian monk. I'm not saying St. Augustine taught that, but it's quite a useful thing nonetheless. And a way of remaining tranquil is to think that this is within the providence of God. God is using this for some reason. It may well be that your patience with somebody will bring them to faith. It may be for our good. We're not atheists. We have to understand that God is in all of these things. It may be that God is requiring of us some act of faith in a time of persecution it may be that he's using this to draw us on in some way why does god allow persecution to happen why is it a means of the spread of the church we don't know but nonetheless it is think of the example of christ christ was nothing if not patient with people and that then brings us to passions which is on the next page now I need to be careful to try and... Because passion is a very... You know, I was behind a lorry the other day, and it said it was for a, a laundry, Paragon Laundries, I think it was, in Cheltenham. Your laundry is our passion, it said on the back of it. Passion is seen as a great and you know, a good thing to have. Well, I want to just be careful with the language. I'm not talking about zeal. Zeal for your house will consume him. I mean, Jesus was, was zealous. I'm not talking about zeal, but I'm talking about passions and the way in which the new testament talks about passions the way that paul in particular talks about passions i think and i'm right i think that the eastern orthodox church 
has a much better understanding of the passions than the Western church. One thing which um, Lee didn't say, but I'm I'm the chair of a charity in Oxford, which is an Eastern Orthodox Western charity where we have a lot of kind of uh, dialogue with each other. So I've come across a lot of this through that. I'm going to read to you something from a Romanian theologian. This, I think, is a good definition of how the Bible uses the word passion. Passion is a knot of contradictions. It's the expression of an egotism which wants to make all things gravitate around it. It's a transformation of the world exclusively into a centre of preoccupation as well. Passion is a product of the will of egocentric sovereignty. It's also a force which pushes man down to the state of an object carried here and there against his will. Sometimes it seeks the infinite. Other times it chooses nothingness. Passion is, well, it comes from the, the Greek word meaning to suffer. Passion, when you think of the passion of Christ, passion is basically when you get overwhelmed. You'll have had this when suddenly you've got the red mist rises or falls or whatever red mist does. You've had this when suddenly you find yourself, you just have to respond in some way and you regret it. You pray that prayer, please God, make that didn't happen. Passion is the kind of thing as it sort of controls you. That's what Paul is getting at. And that is something which throughout the Bible is seen as sinful. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This is the flesh that Paul talks about, sarks. This is the rising up of that kind of fallen part of our nature. It's that thing which we mortify, to use a good Puritan word. It's the kind of thing we have to be careful about. And that is a matter of prayer. And the East, and you can reject this and say those crazy Easterners, but the East say that part of the way we do this is through fasting. When you fast, Jesus says... And so it's a way of denying self, so we regain control of our bodies. Our mind is back in control of the body and not the other way round. Well, so much what the East might say. You can ask me on that later if you want to know more. They talk. Um, yes, no, I'll drop that now. But there are ways of doing this. I've given you lots of um, quotes from the Proverbs here. I've given you uh, some bits as well from the Sermon on the Mount. But a lot of it is simply about shutting up. It's about not acting. It's about being silent. And it's not allowing yourself to be overcome with these things, but to try and control these things. In an age where passion and the fulfilling of passion is seen as paramount, this is very countercultural, but it is very biblical. And it's something we need to pay attention to. The other kind of patience isn't actually being patient with people per se, but it's part of it. And it's being able to bear up under a state of provocation. When, I mean, I I am blessed, you can keep this in, I am blessed with many, many good PCCs. Our meetings are short, they're brief, they're not very frequent. We just about comply with canon law. It's great. I have some very good people. But sometimes churches can be provoking places and sometimes you can suffer in ministry. Well, Christ suffered as well. Who are you that you shouldn't suffer if your Christ suffered for you? So suffering is simply part of what it is to be Christian. And sometimes you need to realise that your persecutor needs to be pitied. Often you're just on the wrong end of the anger. If it wasn't you, it could be somebody else. It's not you. It's just how that person is and it's coming out at you. 
You pray for those who persecute you. You trust that vindication is the Lord's, that he will vindicate. And never underestimate the spiritual side of all of these, the wiles of the devil. We don't talk in today's polite church about these kinds of things much, but we need to be careful we're not provoked into doing something we regret. And keep asking yourself, what is your reputation after all? Is it not simply just part of your pride? Is it not simply a product of your vanity? God is patient with us, and therefore we need to be patient with other people. And patience and forgiveness really go hand in hand. They're part of the same story. And it is a means of winning people to Christ. It is a means, that person you've been patient with for years and years and years, and suddenly the penny drops with them suddenly to use good calvinistic language that call is made effectual so we need to be patient people and patience itself does temper your anger and over time it dampens down your anger we have to be people who can look back at our lives in five years time and see the growth within us this is fruit of the spirit the more you put your roots down into christ the more your fruit is Christ-like. And it is a path often to blessing. Let me just read this from Thomas Watson. This book is is tremendous. It's very thin. It's free. Well, you can pay the banner of truth for it uh, if you want, but it is free on uh, monogism.com. I think it's .com. Uh, So Google it. It is really tremendous. It's not very thick. Watson writes, Affliction teaches us to know ourselves. In prosperity, we are for the most part strangers to ourselves. God afflicts us that we may better know ourselves. We see that corruption in our hearts, sorry, we see that corruption in our hearts in the time of affliction, which we would not believe was there. Water in the glass looks clear, but set it on fire and the scum boils up. In prosperity, a man seems to be humble and thankful. The water looks clear. But set this man up a little on the fire of affliction, and the scum boils up, much impatience and unbelief appear. Oh, says a Christian, I never thought I had such a bad heart as now I see I have. I never thought my corruptions had been so strong, and my grace is so weak. Affliction, when you're under pressure, it demonstrates what you're like. It demonstrates those parts of you that still need to be worked on, where we still need to be more Christ-like. It may not be pleasant, but nonetheless it is a means of grace that God uses to reveal ourselves to ourself. So we need to take affliction seriously and use it as an opportunity to pray into these things. Are there any questions on that before I go into the final section? Yes. Just a a thought on... The tension potentially between not being um, patience is not anger, yes, but also the need for tranquility, yes. But then there are times I think when actually anger is, you know, righteous anger, some grave injustice, yes. And kind of how do you manage the tension between, or you know, where does that where where does that where is that anger right, and when does it tip over and become the wrong kind? Yeah. Yep, I see. I see. Uh, in Christ's ministry, you you see that kind of anger, obviously at the, the cleansing of the temple, and you see it also in the snorting, like an angry horse. The Greek uh, has it, um, 
at, at, the, at Lazarus, at the tomb of Lazarus. So you've got Jesus' anger is at sin and at the effects of sin. It's not at the people necessarily themselves. So I think there is that. I think Jesus' anger is also more considered. Uh, what I'm trying to say is I don't think Jesus is sort of loses his mind and goes flies into a rage. I think a righteous anger can be more considered. I've just uh, put my name forward, God, fool that I am, uh, for General Synod, and I'm sure that I shall find occasions there where I wish to stand up and display righteous anger in that august body. I think there are times when we have to do that, but what I think we need to be wary of is that anger taking us over uh, in a kind of... We've just rewatched all of the Marvel cinematic, cinematic universe uh, with all our boys over the summer. Uh, you know, so not a Hulk type of anger. Think of a, a Professor Hulk, not think of Angry Hulk. So what I'm trying to say is that it, it, there is anger in and of itself... I think needn't be seen as sinful, but the kind of anger, are we being ruled by that anger? And are we angry with people, individuals that we don't like, or are we angry with the effects of sin and the fall? Does that make sense? Thanks. Anything else on that before I just go on to the very last an echo word? No. So the final bit then, Paul talks about in that out-of-context verse, which I've snipped out of Ephesians, bearing with one another in love. So an echo is to regard with tolerance or to undergo something onerous or troublesome without giving in. I think part of this loving, uh, bearing with one another in love, comes from acknowledging the image of God in other people and acknowledging our own fallenness as part of that. The image may not be perfect. The image may be marred somewhat. The image may be sort of rather dirty and need to be cleaned up. But nonetheless, the image of God is there even after the fall. You'll think of Genesis 9, 6 and the uh, murder being seen as so um, heinous because you're kidding, shedding the blood of somebody made in the image of God. But also we're part of the family of Christ. This person that you're, who's irritating you somewhat in your church, you can think of the person right now. That person is part of the family of Christ. It's part of your family and families are irritating at times but there are deeper bonds of love than that in any case and patient love is a hallmark of jesus's ministry and frankly his crucifixion as well patience and bearing with one another in love is a suffering it can be a hard thing to do but it is the christ-like thing to do and we have to acknowledge that we're patient and we tolerate other people uh, in, in this loving manner uh, because we are part of the body of christ together and because we see the image of Christ in those others. Now, I appreciate, I'm talking within the church here, and I appreciate we need to talk about patience with those outside of the church as well. We're there in the image of God. We can talk about that there. And so, patience really is something which I would urge you to pray for. It is a spiritual fruit. It is a spiritual gift. It is something which grows in us. It is a sign of spiritual maturity, and therefore it is work, and therefore it is part of our Christian discipleship, something we should pray for. And before I'm going to ask you to come back up and, and deal with questions, I'm just going to read you again from Thomas Watson, but a different book, uh, The Godly Man's Picture, which I think puts it quite nicely. Pray to God for patience. Patience is a flower of God's planting. Pray that it may grow in your heart and send forth its sweet perfume. Prayer is a holy charm to charm down the evil spirit. Prayer 
composes the heart and puts it in tune when impatience has broken the strings and put everything into confusion. Oh, go to God. Prayer delights God's ear. It melts his heart. It opens its hand. God cannot deny a praying soul. Seek him with importunity and either he will remove the affliction or, which is better, he will remove your impatience. Amen. Amen. Mr Gages. Well, um, are there any questions, any other questions or observations we would like to throw in Chris's direction? How would you respond to this situation or something like that? Have you got something like that? While you're thinking of something, I, I love that image of um, the sort of physical effect of something happening to you and mm. you have to let it pass. Yeah. It reminded me a bit of when in Exodus 34, God pronounces his name, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And slow to anger there in the Hebrew is Erech Apayim. He has a long nose. God <laughs> has a long nose because when something happens that provokes him... He has a long nose before the breath comes out. Yeah. You know, he breathes in a lot. Um, I can't breathe in that much. My nose isn't that big. But God has a very long nose. And that, yeah. there's, a, there's a physical way of describing that patience of yes. God. I think it's a similar thing, yes, isn't it? Yes, this is, this is an absolute abuse of script. Not that. But what I'm about <laughs> to say is an absolute abuse of scripture. But somebody did say, uh, in a diff- um, which my wife read somewhere, something about parenting, uh, about the phrase, it came to pass. Well, it will pass. <laughs> you will get through it. It came, but it will pass. Now, I'm assume, I appreciate that's not precisely what the phrase means, but nonetheless, I think there is something in that. that mm. we, it will pass. We can take that deep breath, mm. and uh, we don't have to be riled. Yes. Yes. But, yeah, Anthony. Um, Chris, I wonder if you could say something about patience in relation to how quickly God works in people's lives. Mm. Um, just to put that in context, I've, I'm, I'm two years into curacy now, and up till this point I've been in various cities and places with young people. It's all very dynamic, and I'm in quite a settled town. And it seems as if God is working in people's lives, but maybe not very quickly. Yes. <laughs> um, can you say anything on yeah, I think that's entirely the case. I mean, I'm. it's fair to say that the congregations I'm working in are all more, more elderly. Herefordshire generally is, is older than the national average. And I think that you do see those changes. You certainly do see those changes, but you're right. They are slower. They take longer because you've got ingrained patterns of thinking. And... Um, in my experience has been my parish is not evangelical parishes, although they have had two of them, have had e- one of them, has had evangelical ministry at some point in the past. Um, for many, many long years, they've been told that you can't believe these things anymore. And actually, uh, I've been saying, well, you can believe these things. There are good, reasonable, logical reasons why you should believe these things. And you're almost having to undo years of teaching before you can start reteaching. So... I think that you never know what's going into people's minds when you're talking. You never know which bit is going to hit uh, at what particular moment. And the more you say things again and again, something will trigger. And two of my parishes are prayer book. And I've used the prayer book with them quite often with that. And these are phrases they've said for decades and decades. But you can bring them to life. So I think there is that sense. And my experience has been where I am now that it was only after about eight After about eight years in, I took a sabbatical, and after that, about eight years in, um, I felt, now I can get started. 
it took me that long to get to know people to, to feel that now actually these parishes are in a different place so now I need to start doing something different so it is a long old call but that's because I think people have been setting that path for so long like the proverbial super tanker it just takes a while to turn round whereas the young are gullible they believe anything you tell them so it's much quicker <laughs> <laughs> What about, what about reforming and renewing the Church of England? Is that something we have to be patient about? I shall come back to that in a second, but okay. I'll take your question first. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. One distinction, uh, it's of course godly and righteous to endure suffering. Uh, however, churches uh, can be horrifically abusive to their clergy and staff. Yeah. Um, what, what's, the, uh, what's the warning sign that, or, the, or how do you navigate either informally or, or formally with the instructions of the Church of England? Um, like, you know, not just the normal calling to be patient, but uh, situations that, or, or people that are, um, you know, really quite dangerous. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been very fortunate. I've, I've not experienced that. Uh-huh. Uh, but I would, there's a number of things that pop into my head. One, I think, is that we have a tendency um, to not to acknowledge when we are being bullied Mm -hmm. because we see that as a sign of our weakness. Mm -hmm. So there is a sense where we will often deceive ourselves, first of all. And um, I think it's important in any form of ministry to have somebody else that you can talk to, that you are, who's alongside you in ministry, not necessarily in your church, but it may be somebody that you know through college. Um, I happen to see my old bishop but one fairly often, and that's a helpful thing because you can have those kind of warning signs. And then I think just don't be afraid to use the structures which we're provided with. We have archdeacons uh, and we have um, bishops, should we need to, and, and use those. Use rural deans. Rural deans are kind of semi-detached, and I've been a rural dean. They're disillusioned people. So they're, they're used to this kind of thing. And, and do I think, George, you've got some wisdom on this. Sadly, come across a fair bit of this, um, especially lately, um, with the rise of the Someone who's ordained acts inappropriately or in an oppressive or abusive way to a member of the laity. There are all sorts of uh, kind of measures that quickly, almost like a hair trigger, can come into place and often get misused. If it's the other way around, there is nothing in place at all. And sadly, especially in rural parishes, it seems to me, there tends to be one or two powerful people Mm. uh, who've got themselves into powerful positions in the church that can really cause great damage. Um, And the thing is, we're building up, I find I'm building up a lot of understanding of how this works and how to help people in it. I call the archdeacon the second you get anything like that, just make them aware just straight to the archdeacon and let them know if the archdeacon is friendly then, and, and, and comes to see you and should do that straight away then it's a lot better mm. and if you're in one of our areas, call one of us uh, and we'll support mm. you uh, if we don't support you directly we'll find somebody who can it's a horrible situation to be in but, but because sadly it's happened a lot we know a lot of people who've dealt with it yeah. uh, and can help you out um, and really, these are the areas we need to be tackling. It shouldn't happen. And it doesn't just happen to us as well. Uh, the last person I spoke to this was a liberal woman uh, who had been bullied mm. terribly in a rural parish uh, by, by somebody who's, who 
So, you know, sorry that's a sideline issue, but it is something that I've noticed a lot. No, I think you're true, and I think this is what I'm trying to say, what trouble is not. No, initially, it's not tolerating these things. You know, if you're t- patience isn't saying, I'm going to ignore it. Um, then I think, yes, it, the first thing to do is, is, is seek help, acknowledge it. Just to add to that, it's not just the, the sort of rural Dean Archdeacon, your diocesan safeguarding officer. Mm-hmm. Yes, very good point. Um, should, yeah. I would say should be your first point yeah. of call if you think this is genuinely a case of bullying and abuse rather than just someone being annoying. Mm. It's a good note to use the polity that we've got. Oh, you know, there are systems in place for this. Let's use what we've got. There's a question here and then one over there. Tom. Um, patients with, with people, um, is there a point at which, or I hope there is, but when is the point? How do you know when the point is reached when um, you've, there's a, a limit to your patients with someone who's a, a, a bit of a pastoral black hole? Hmm. So you could spend a, a couple of days in my, my time, spend a lot of time on someone with someone, but they're not actually getting better, not really trying to get better either. Yeah. I think they're just, they're, I've only got so many hours in my week, yeah. and I feel like I've reached the, the limit of my patience. Have I, or was something else happening there? I think there's a collusion is a word which I think I've which I was introduced to when I was at college which is helpful this idea that if we're not careful then we can be colluding with people in this kind of situation that the problem which is being presented isn't necessarily the real problem it may simply be loneliness um, it may be all sorts of other things and I think we have to be careful that there are times when yes um, we have a partial responsibility to the whole parish and certainly to the whole church, not simply to one or two individuals within that. I wouldn't be shy of trying to find other people. I've often asked other people that I know um, roundabout to come in and, and to, to visit and to try and talk to people. Um, or, or I've um, sort of said to the person, that I, I, can, I can come and see you sort of once a month or so, but I, I just afraid I can't see you more often. If you need to talk to somebody more often then I will, tr- I will give them contacts of other people that they can try. I mean, I've spoken to these other people first. But I think you, that, is a, that is a real danger. But I think in my, your experience may be very different, but in my experience, either it's been because the presenting issue is not the real issue and you've got to get to the deeper issue. And very often I find it is, it is widows who simply don't talk to anybody else. And that, that's sad. But they need some just kind of support to speak to. Or it might be simply you just haven't got the skill set to deal with it. And you've just got to own up to that and say, but I do know somebody who can, uh, and pass them on to that. So I think there is a time when you're, not to say your patience runs out, because that sounds like you're going to sort of storm off in a hissy fit, but there are times, I think, when you have to acknowledge that there's nothing more you can offer. And I think that that's fine. I mean, obviously not on the very first meeting, but it might be. It might be. I've had this, but people have said it, and I've just said... I don't know. This person knows far better qualified to talk about this. It's just knowing your own limits. You're not only competent. Mm-hmm. At least I'm not. Was there two questions or was that one? That was it. There's one over here. I think it was Tony. Yeah, I'm just picking up really back on what um, uh, was said just now. Uh, I had a situation where two blokes in the parish, two very, very powerful men who'd recently retired, um, took it on their shoulders to try and get rid of me as the vicar there. Um, and I kind of thought, in my naivety, I needed to just suck it up. And the godly thing was just to say, fine, you know, that's okay. 
And what it actually did, it kind of nearly destroyed me emotionally, psychologically. And it got to the point where my team wrecked, I was a team vicar. We were on a seven-year license. They found out that there was only about, I don't know, nine months or a year to go on my license. So they started, this great, we're going to start organising village-wide uh, meetings to work out what kind of vicar we want next. And my boss, the team rector, said, Tony, you just can't suck this up anymore. If you don't talk to the bishop, get a good bishop, I'm going to. So I was kind of forced to. And the bishop said to me, we're not putting up with any more of this, I think the word was crap. And the next day, I had a renewal of license for a further seven years. <laughs> so they had eight years to put up with me. So there is a... I think I was trying to be kind of humble in a mm. false way, not realising what it was doing to me. I think it can be an avoidance. I mean, I've made it, probably after about two or three years in ministry, I made it my habit that whenever there's any kind of blow-up or anything like this, uh, the first thing I always do is I turn up on somebody's doorstep and say, let's talk this through. And I think that it is easy to, to sort of, as you say, suck it up thinking you're being humble. But you've got to confront, it doesn't have to be aggressive, but I think you've just got to talk. And then sometimes you find out there are other issues there as well. I think this is the thing, is that often what people present. Do you want to say something about renewal and reform and renewal, whatever it was? What was the thing you asked me? Well, church society is a fellowship contending to reform and renew yeah, the indeed. Church of England in biblical faith. Yes. Uh, does patience apply to that, or is it something that we should be demanding happens tomorrow or at General Synod? Well, I think we can wait a week. I think this is, this is the it's issue, isn't it? It's interesting, because there is that sense in a denomination... There is that sense of what do you tolerate, what is right and what is wrong. And this is something you struggle with on a, on a local level as well as on a, on a denominational level. Um, we clearly have to be patient because how long have you had that tagline, wherever it is, you know, it, for some sort of time. Banner out there, I think. Yes, for, for a long time. And church society has been at this game for plenty long enough. And clearly we're not there yet. Uh, I think the patient says that we never give up. There's a doggedness about seeking always to 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 bring um, biblical truth to the denomination to to speak prophetically into situations. So I think in that instance, the the, um, the patience is in doggedness. And even when you think you're banging your head against a brick wall, it's still we're still here. We're still saying this, and it's not allowing yourself to be sidelined and ignored and try and ghettoized in some part of the CV. Yeah. Um, and don't give up if it doesn't happen tomorrow. Or in yeah, year. I know, and it is it is difficult. I mean, I've got, of my five sons, four have now left the Church of England in various directions, one to Roman Catholicism, uh, one to the Free Church of Scotland. So, you know, we're going sort of all, all extremes, and others into independent churches. It is difficult to know, but my, my sort of patience in this is, one, that dogginess with the denomination, but two, I feel called to these people in my parishes and I, I shall continue to serve them as best I can until I'm till I'm the next great ejection takes place and that <laughs> well, that never happens. Um, please pray for our patience as we finish yeah. this session. Pray for our patience and thank the Lord for his. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do put up with us. We thank you that you have patiently called us, that you equip us, and that we do grow into the likeness of your Son. So, Father, we do pray that you'd help us to be patient with those who you bring across our paths. Help us to look to you when we're not quite sure how to respond. Help us not to be ruled by our own emotions and our anger, but help us rather to reflect that Christ-likeness who at times, yes, was angry at injustice, 
but at other times with patience with those who persecuted him. And we pray this, Lord, not that we may be better people, but rather that we may bring you better glory. In Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Chris. Let's thank Chris. Thank you so much.